This morning we begin one of the most important series that I think we've ever done here at Calvary Chapel, and that's saying a lot. We've been a church for 20 years. I feel all that we do here is important. But today I believe we are going to start a series as we take a moment of pause in our look at the book of Acts together to address what I believe the nation is asking collectively. And that is, does God exist? Is the Bible really God's Word? Today so many people are opposing Christianity who seem to be so learned, so educated. Why should I believe you? This morning we begin a series that we've entitled Goodbye God. And I'm sure that many of you, when you saw that being introduced or presented, said, Pastor, what direction is this church going? We are addressing this subject because many people are saying goodbye to God. And as a result, the landscape of our nation is changing. It looks different, doesn't it? Feels different, doesn't it? We're seeing things change all around us. And we don't quite understand the change or the reason for the change. But there's a growing concern on where that change is taking us. And this morning, again, we launch into this time together as a church family to help you understand that change. To help you understand how you can answer your friends and family and loved ones when they ask questions opposing Christianity that they themselves have been challenged with by someone who possibly holds a position of authority from a professor to an owner of a corporation, etc. They themselves couldn't answer that objection and it has given them a moment of pause. They've taken a step back to reevaluate their understanding and their beliefs. And now they see you as a Christian and they are wrestling through these ideas themselves. And then knowing you to be a Christian, they say to you, what answers have thee for these things? And our discovery has been this. The church in America has done a lousy job preparing their congregants to answer some of the most relevant questions that our society is posing. That's just a fact. And so what we want to do is to demonstrate and to show to you that there are clear, intelligent answers that can be given to the most skeptical questions asked by the populace around us that would cause them a moment of pause themselves and require them to take a step back. And if they were honest with themselves, they would have to reconsider the evidence once again. But unfortunately, we have discovered that many Christians are not prepared to do that. So we want to help get you there. Because I don't believe that a skeptic should ever be seen as an obstacle. 
A skeptic should always be seen as an opportunity. An opportunity to share with them the greatest news that one could ever hear. We should never be afraid of a question. We should never cower under skepticism. And we should never, never collapse under the weight of intellectual persecution. There are reasons, there are answers for the faith that we hold to so deeply and dearly as Christians. So as they would then position themselves to say goodbye to God, hopefully God would use you as an instrument to come into their lives and to give them an answer that would cause them a moment to consider and possibly even to reevaluate that decision. So as we begin this morning, we come to God humbly and let us ask Him to guide us. Father, we thank You for Your Word and our time together this morning. And Father, we pray, Lord, that You would speak to us through Your Word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last couple of years, you have undoubtedly been seeing articles written with headlines such as this. The Christian faith is declining in America. Or the one I like, Christianity is dead. Really? What are these articles based upon? In fact, just in the last two weeks, I have discovered articles on the internet from prominent news sources with titles such as these. Godless America. Big drop in Americans calling themselves Christians. Fox Nation, May 2015. Study, Americans becoming less Christian and more secular. That was the AP in May of 2015. Losing faith in America, decline in religion, rise in atheism, Christianity Today, May 2015. Just this month. These were just three of several dozen that were found on the internet to give people the impression that Christianity is on its way out. And that in the wake of that, in the vacuum of that, a nation has been left to embrace the only thing left, which is secularism. But is that true? What are these articles actually saying? What are they based upon? And are they truly reflective of what is happening here in the United States of America? This morning I'm going to show you what has caused all of this confusion. The real culprit of it all. This is where it all began. 26 pages from an organization called the Pew, P-E-W, Research Center. And it was one of the most startling statistics that they have ever done. Hundreds of thousands of dollars was spent on the compiling of this information. And what they had discovered was that it appeared by the statistical data that Christianity was on its way out here in the United States of America. But what they didn't clarify as well as they should, based upon their own evidence, is that the individuals that are saying goodbye to Christianity are from a very specific demographic group. 
And that is individuals who they themselves really weren't actively uh, involved in the Christian faith. They were nominal Christians at best. Maybe making their semi-annual pilgrimages out to church at Easter and in Christmas. And they really weren't uh, into it completely. But they make up a large percentage of our society. And in the wake of this, some have determined to look at this statistical data and to say Christianity is on the decline in America. What I would say is that those who claim nominal Christianity are on the decline in America. Changes things a little bit. And as we read through this, and which most of these articles that I have just mentioned were based upon, we discover the following facts. These facts have been summed up by the Barna Group in a report that they put out at the beginning of this year to try to bring clarification to all of the different news articles that we have been inundated with over the last couple of years. And here is the conclusion that Barna came to in their survey, testing the statistical data of the surveys that were created previously, especially this one from the Pew Research Center. One out of four Americans claim that they either consider themselves either an atheist or an agnostic. Let's define those terms. An atheist is one who is thoroughly convinced that God does not exist. They are absolutely, positively assured that God does not exist. An agnostic, on the other hand, which I believe makes up the larger portion of the group, is one who will now say, we are not sure if God exists or not. Now these people, this group, this 25% of Americans, one out of four, has been given the label, and we're going to call them this going forward in our series together, skeptics. Skeptic is a, is a person who will absolutely challenge the ideal of the masses. They want their questions answered and significant evidence being produced to convince them that the masses are correct. Skeptics. 75% of America is still religious. 25% have moved to a position of atheist or agnosticism. That in and of itself should tell you something. In fact, the only place in the world right now that this is currently uh, happening is here in the United States of America. Around the world, God is still greatly accepted. And it is interesting to see what is happening in some countries that almost appear to sterilize their nations completely of God altogether, only to see that he wasn't willing to go. And so as we look at these together, we are going to discover that out of this 25%, Barna concluded that two-thirds... Now, two-thirds of the 25% of Americans that claim either atheism or to be an agnostic have associated themselves in one way or another with the Christian faith. But the reasons that they gave for their departure into atheism or to become an agnostic were one of the three following. 
Number one, they don't believe that the Bible can be trusted. Number two, they don't believe in the integrity of the church. And number three, the world appeared opposed to Christianity and to the Christian faith. These three alone have moved people from an assured place in their Christian faith, this two-thirds of the 25%, have been moved from an assured position in Christianity to an insecure position of skepticism. Again, define a skeptic. A skeptic is a person inclined to question or to doubt all accepted opinions. It also appears that this occurs when the individual is confronted with a question or is challenged by one who is an authority figure such as a professor or their immediate supervisor, the one that they report to, somebody who may have a greater intellectual prowess than that person who has uh, secured himself in Christianity or secured herself in Christianity. And as a result... A question has been asked. And looking at other information, when a student leaves high school who's attended church and who has been affiliated with youth groups and affiliated with a church and has grown up in a healthy Christian home, when they go off to many of the colleges of the United States of America today, they are confronted with the reality that many there on the college campuses are extremely skeptical to all things concerning God and Christianity. To the point, does God even exist? How did Christianity begin? Was Jesus a real person? Is the Bible truly the Word of God? Fundamental positions that were at one time broadly accepted as absolutes are now being challenged themselves. And when a young person moves themselves into that kind of an arena and they see the intelligence of their professor and they hear these objections and these challenges from them, it can be a very daunting thing if they're not prepared. If they're not prepared properly to encounter that. Again, we shouldn't see that as an obstacle. We should see that as an opportunity. Unfortunately, too many churches, I think, have prepared their people to see this as an obstacle, and therefore the Christian reacts poorly at that moment rather than properly. If we prepare people for these situations as opportunities, they are going to look at it differently. And then if we give them the information that they need to give credible answers to the questions that are being posed, then they are going to have a completely different outcome. Just recently in our movie theaters, we had a movie that went through, and I hope you saw it, God's Not Dead. I truly enjoyed that movie. And of course, it's based on the premise of a college student being challenged by his professor. Maybe you've been challenged by someone, a co-worker, a friend, or maybe even closer to home, your spouse or your child. And they have deep questions concerning Christianity. Questions that are so important that we answer correctly because they need to know that there are answers to such questions that can be found in the Bible. Intelligent questions that deserve intelligent answers. And that's what we look 
to provide for you over the next several weeks. We must first understand a little bit about the people who are saying goodbye to God if we are truly going to understand how we should answer them. Make sense? In fact, the demographics and the statistics have changed greatly over the last 20 years. Concerning the character or the identity of these skeptics, we find that there is very little in common with the skeptics of 20 years ago compared to the skeptics of today. Let me give you a couple examples. Today we find out that skeptics are younger than ever. On average, we find that 20 years ago, 18% of skeptics were under 30 years old. Today, that proportion has nearly doubled to 34%. Nearly one quarter of the total U.S. population, 23% compared to 17% in 1991. By the same token, the proportions of skeptics who are 65 or older has been cut in half, down just 7% of the segment. It is interesting, because as you get older, you sure hope that heaven exists, don't you? The body doesn't work the same way it once did, when it now takes you an hour and a half to put on your socks. Things become more difficult. There's more hair in the drain after you comb it than when you shave. Nobody else have that problem? Today, more of the skeptics are more educated than ever. Today, skeptics tend to be better educated than the past. Two decades ago, one-third of skeptics were college graduates. But today, half of the groups carry a college degree. And this gives reasoning to consider what is happening with the transition from high school to college. Again, we should not fear this skepticism. We should not necessarily avoid it. We need to engage it but we need to engage it properly. The one that interests me the most was that today there are more women who are skeptics than ever before. In 1993, only 16% of atheists and agnostics were women. In 2013, that figure has nearly tripled to 43%. I find that fascinating. And this isn't as a result of the number of men who are atheistic or agnostic declining. In fact, men have steadily increased over the last two decades. But women have tripled in their opinion of God to move them to a position of either atheism or to be an agnostic. Today, it is more diverse than ever to be a skeptic. Where just 20 years ago, 80% of those who claimed to be skeptics were white. But today, increasing Hispanic and Asians adults alike, in fact, Asian Americans, are the least Christian ethnic demographic in the United States of America. And lastly, it is more widely dispersed regionally. 20 years ago, it wasn't uncommon to hear about the... Northeast, New York, New Hampshire, Connecticut, etc., being skeptical and resistant to God and to Christianity, and even in the West. But today we find it in regions like the Bible Belt and also in the Midwest. 
In fact, in summary of our future generations, we discover that almost every aspect of our culture is being affected to move to the position of either atheism or agnostic within the next 50 years. To complicate that even further, we have the rise of what is called the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. The nuns. Again, these are those that we mentioned earlier who would be considered nominal Christians. Uh, If they were challenged or asked to uh, associate themselves with a faith or a religion at any given time, say they're checking into a hospital, or maybe they're uh, given a survey, or they're being asked by an acquaintance, you know, how they affiliated themselves, generally they would affiliate themselves with Christianity 20 years ago. Today that's no longer occurring. Now they're saying we have no religious affiliations whatsoever. It's changing. But that change isn't necessarily bad. I think it is more reflective of who those people truly are. Because they're associated with Christianity doesn't necessarily mean they believe in Christianity. And I much rather speak to someone who is honest enough with themselves to say, I do or I do not believe in God and Christianity rather than one state to me, I'm associated with Christianity. It gives me a much better idea of the manner in which to approach the conversation as a result. But listen to these statistics that these nuns have created. One-fifth of the U.S. public and a third of adults under 30 are religiously unaffiliated today. The highest percentages ever in the Pew Research Center's polling's history. In the last five years alone, the unaffiliated have increased from just over 15% to under 20% of all U.S. adults. Their ranks now include more than 13 million self-described atheists and agnostics, nearly 6% of the U.S. public, as well as 33 million people who say they have no particular religious affiliation, which would equal 14%. So what does this all mean for us? Again, we've talked about it not being an obstacle, but being an opportunity. But I'm going to surprise you with what I'm about to say. What is happening in the United States of America is closer to the biblical reality than what we've enjoyed for the last 200 years. Do you understand that? If you look at history objectively, you will discover until the mid-third century, Christianity never was the prominent ideology with any nation. It was always a scattered remnant amongst a nation that was often the most persecuted and hated. If you look at Christianity in its infancy, when it first began, you discover that Christianity carried with it an idea that was so offensive to the people at that time that the Christians were murdered over it. Now, we may feel that the world today feels that we offend them because we don't agree with them moralistically on every issue. But the Christians were so hated when they first went out into the world 
because they held an idea that it was so, so precious to them. They were so passionate about it that they were unwilling to forsake it or to recant it. If you look at history closely, you will discover that the known world occupied by the Roman Empire was just laced with the idea of polytheistic thinking. There are many gods. And Rome was completely tolerant. You could worship as many gods as you so desired as long as Caesar was one of them. And one day out of the year, every individual had to pay homage to Caesar Regardless of what other gods you believed in, you had to give this one day to Caesar and bow your knee to him and pledge your allegiance to him and call him Caesar is Lord. But the ideology that moved Christians, which was one of the core components of Christianity, would not allow them to do that. Does anybody know what that was? Monotheism. We believe that there's one God. And only one God. And there is no other God before him. And so the Christians could not bow their knee to Caesar or to any other God. And as a result, many of them lost their property, their wealth, and their lives because they could not submit to that reality. Because they felt, based on their faith, And their understanding of the one true God, that he and he alone deserved their allegiance and worship, and therefore they could not succumb to that pressure of worship of other gods, let alone Caesar. So what we are seeing, and what many have described as an antagonism towards Christianity... When in actuality, I believe that if we were to look at it closely, there are some who are militant and aggressive in their antagonism to uh, displace Christianity. But there are others who simply don't know. There are others who have been confronted with different questions that they have been ill-equipped and unprepared to answer. And as a result, they have now been taken back They have to reconsider what they've always believed in. And we have to understand that that reasoning has great answers that can be offered to those questions. So as we see this antagonism or this skepticism arise in our culture, we as a church and as an individual are going to commit to God that we are going to see it as an opportunity rather than an obstacle. Understand that if you look at the Bible clearly and objectively, the backdrop, which was the real world at that time that was so opposed to Christianity, allowed for the greatest perpetuation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you not realize that? No matter what the Roman Empire did to try to stop it, they couldn't. They couldn't. It continued decade after decade after decade until it came to the mid-third century when Constantine no longer could fight against it. He then decided to 
create, because he was a pragmatist at nature, the unification of the Romans, gods, and the Christian God to please and to appeal all. But I believe that this backdrop allows for the greatest contrast, a distinction between those who are truly following after Jesus Christ and those who are not. Not that I want to create an environment of us and them. That should never be created. We who are believers in Jesus Christ are no better than anyone else. It is by His grace and His blood that we have been saved. But with that clear-cut distinction, Christianity now can be viewed more clearly and objectively than ever before, right? Because the society which we see now is being created around us is going to cause us to truly, this might surprise you, be Christians. To love our enemies. To turn the other cheek. To give answers for the hope that is in us. To allow people to see us persecuted and doing it with grace and kindness allowing them to see that we truly believe what we say we believe because we act upon those things that we say we believe. Do you understand that this backdrop allows for an intensity within the Christian's life to become a dynamic light in a dark world? That's what I see happening. That's why it should no longer be considered an obstacle but an opportunity. This is our time to shine. This is our time to bring Christianity to a world that so desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what one person wrote as he summed up everything that we discussed. Yet in spite of clear trends and obvious needs, our research suggests that most of the efforts of Christian ministries fail to reach much beyond the core Christianized America. It is much easier to work with the already sympathetic audience than to focus on the so-called nuns or those who claim to be skeptics. And it is no mystery why. Figuring out how to effectively engage skeptics is difficult. One of the unexpected results we uncovered is that the limited influence of a person's relationship on skeptics They are considerably less relational than less engaged in social activities than the average American. Christians, for whom ministry is about relationship, may be disappointed when they find that many skeptics are not as enamored with relational bonds as those who are already part of church life. This is a piece of insight that I want you to understand. And we need to use to our advantage. What they have uncovered is that many who claim to be skeptics and hold that mindset have inadvertently isolated themselves. This is so important to understand. They feel alone. And as a result, I believe that the backdrop is even more clear than ever. Because as a Christian, we never feel alone. For I am always with you, he says. I'll never leave you. I never forsake you. The atheist and the agnostic appears now to be one who has isolated themselves from everyone else. For those of you raising children, 
and are about to send them off to college or have children who are in college currently. Ed Stetzer, in his report, as he looked at these findings, wanted to know what contributed to these young people's departure and what individuals could do differently that would have helped prepare them for the challenges that they faced as they grew up and went off to college. Listen to these things. There are four of them. This is what the youth was saying. As he went and he talked to these individuals, he discovered that the number one thing that they wanted was the church to help guide my decisions in everyday life. They wanted the church to help guide their decisions in everyday life. Basically saying, prepare me to make good decisions going forward. My father, though not a believer in Jesus Christ, was always trying to coach me and train me and prepare me as his son to make good decisions in life. How many of our children have gone off the rail because they have made poor decisions in life? And that's, of course, not always faulted to the parent by any way, shape, or form. You can do everything that you want and still have your child make a bad decision. You can do everything you can to prepare them and they can still make a bad decision. But this is what they asked for. I did wonder if some of them were passing the buck saying, it's my mom and dad's fault and not taking ownership of it themselves. Let's consider that. Listen to what another one said. This was the second desire. I wish my parents were still married to each other and that together both attended church. That's interesting. The effects of the broken home. Some said, now this is where they blame me, so parents, it's my turn. The pastor's sermons were relevant to my life. But again, that's a very relevant statement in and of itself. Often when we hear the accusation that the sermons are not relative, people are saying this. Well, it's just not hitting me where I'm at. and It's not really helping me where I'm at. Now, that's important. But often if you hear what we do here at this church, and I can't speak for anybody else, we try to be proactive, preparing you for what is still yet to happen. And maybe if you would have listened earlier, you wouldn't be in the spot that you were today because we might have prepared you for that spot. And often we are preparing you for future spots that are occurring, that haven't occurred today, but will happen in the future. But relevant would also include, in my opinion, being able to answer those challenges that skeptics would throw your way to, con- to stumble and to confuse you. And lastly, at least one adult from the church made a significant investment in me personally and spiritually. The Bible speaks often of mentoring. It is something that we are implementing here at this church. The mentoring of men and women in our church. And it has greatly impacted the lives of not only the mentors, but those who are being mentored. Mentoring is huge. Titus talks about it over and over and over again. These are the four things these students wish that they would have had to prepare them for what they faced later. But what do we do now? Number one, 
we need to disciple people. Discipleship is not only learning biblical facts, but seeing those facts played out in your life. I cannot just tell my daughter, do what I say. I need to tell my daughter, do what I say and do what I do. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. Jesus not only said, but he did, and those who followed him were disciples. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He was saying and doing the same thing. That's discipleship. So we need to be authentic in that manner. Secondly, we must not only look at students of our church, but we must also equip the parents to work with their children to help them engage in these conversations. My daughter brought home a math book. She's only a sophomore. And she asked me to help her with her math. And I thought I was looking at alien writing. And I said... Honey, this must be that new math that they talk about, you know. So often, the parents can't help because they themselves are not equipped. The church is never a a substitute for the parent. The church is only a supplement with the parent to help equip and educate and train your child in the way of the Lord. It has to start at home with mom and dad. And then the church can come alongside mom and dad and assist them. And that's what we're looking to do. We're looking at it as a totality, not just students, but everyone. I want you to go to your friends and be able to answer the skeptics that you may know in your life as well. And recognize that it takes a church to raise a committed adult. It does. The church is meant to be the body of Christ here on this earth. It isn't just one of us that are pouring into people's lives. It's all of us who are pouring into people's lives. And I think that's something we can do and do even better here at this church. So what do we do next? Well, over the next several weeks, we are going to be taking a very close look at the three objections that so many have concerning the Bible, the church, and the world around us. I want you to listen with me as skeptics talk about the Bible. And I want to read this to you. Skeptics dismiss the idea that the Bible is holy or supernatural in any way. Two-thirds contend that it is simply a book of well-known stories and advice written by humans and containing the same degree of authority and wisdom as any other self-help book. I'm going to stop there for a moment. I'm going to say amen to that, and the church has to take responsibility for that. What has happened in many churches across America today is that they have approached the Bible as if it was merely a self-help book in which to pull principles from to help you have a better life here and now. That is incorrect. The Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ unto eternal salvation. That's what the Bible is. From Genesis to Revelation... And all that that encompasses. As he went on to say, the remaining one-third are divided between those who believe the Bible is a historical document that contains the unique but not inspired accounts of events that happened in the past and those who do not know what to make of the Bible but have decided it deserves no special treatment or consideration. 
We are going to demonstrate by taking the most significant event in the Bible and showing you how that event has been historically preserved. The reason I say it that way is because I want the skeptic to have to look at the Bible with me from the historical perspective. Demonstrating and showing you how the resurrection of Jesus Christ was encapsulated within the Bible in such a unique fashion that it must be considered, considered historically accurate simply because of the manner in which it was recorded. That's what I'm going to demonstrate to you next week together. Because if the resurrection isn't true, we can just all go to lunch right now, right? But if it is true, we better take a look at everything else he said. We better take a look at everything else he did. Because that is significant. If Jesus didn't resurrect, then he was no better than anybody else. In fact, Paul himself said that Christians are the most pitiable, then we should be pitied for our faith in a dead Christ. But if he's living, that would require a moment of pause. When it comes to the church... Churches have done very little to con- convince skeptics to reevaluate their thinking. In fact, because more than two thirds of the skeptics have attended Christian churches in the past, most for an extended period of time, their dismissal of God, the Bible, and churches is not theoretical in nature. Most skeptics think of Christian churches as, and I want to read this to you, number one. Groups of people who share a common physical space and have some common religious views but are not personally connected to each other in any meaningful or life-changing way. Number two, organizations that add little, if any, value to their community. Their greatest value stems from the limited times they serve the needy in the community. Number three, Organizations that stand for the wrong things, wars, preventing gay marriage and women's freedom to control her own body, sexual and physical violence uh, perpetrated on people by religious authority figures, mixing religious beliefs with political policy and action. And number four, led by people who have not earned their position of influence by proving their love of humankind and thus are not deserving of our trust. That's the attitude of these skeptics towards the church. So in our second time together, we're going to look at what the church is meant to be. And are we doing that? We're not going to criticize and we're not going to judge others. We're going to look at ourselves. What are we doing to either prove that or disprove that as a church? And lastly, the world. For the world has become extremely bold and boisterous concerning atheism and agnosticism. If you go to your local bookstore, you'll discover that many of the top-selling books in our nation today are by well-known atheists, such as Stephen Hawking's, Peter Singer's, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Bill Maurer, Christopher Hutchin, oh, and yes, even Woody Allen. As one wrote, he said this, It's a chicken or an egg conundrum to identify which came first, the atheist celebrity 
or the uptick in the number of atheists. Whatever the case, atheism has shifted in the past 50 years from cultural anemia to something the cooler kids are doing in life. I hope we have set the stage for you. And I want to leave you with a portion of the Word of God this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 43, if you'd like to turn there with me in your Bibles. As Jesus is now moving, he has been recognized as the Son of God. He is now collecting his followers. One of the very first of his followers is none other than a skeptic himself. And I don't believe that Jesus opposes skeptics at all. In fact, I think he likes to reason with skeptics. Him being God and all, it's kind of fun to watch. But as Jesus reasons with skeptics and shows himself to skeptics, it is not Jesus or the skeptic that I want us to look at in our text this morning as we close in just a minute. But I want you to notice the friend, the intermediary between the two. And I want you and I to adopt this position going forward here in our church and as an individual. Let's read together, if we will, starting in verse 43. And the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in verse 46, Nathanael, embodying the skeptic, said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not a place that was known for its intellectual prowess or raising up uh, influential people. It wasn't one of those places that was really on the radar. Nobody really went there for a family vacation of any sort. And it was known for its debauchery and also for its lower class of society in the sense of being poor and so forth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In his sarcasm, you also hear his skepticism. Fully knowing the ideas and the trends of the society around him, he was willing to buck against it and to say to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Not being willing to move or to go any farther. And let's watch what Philip did. After being confronted with the sarcasm, which I believe also was the fruit of his skepticism, Philip said to him, two words, what are they? Come and see. The little information that Philip had, he already used. He didn't shut down the conversation, did he? He didn't walk away seeing it being an obstacle. Oh, he's, he's a surly guy. I'm not going to go any farther with him. Oh, he's a skeptic. I'm not even going to try to reason with him. Right? Philip pursued it, and he asked one more question, and Nathaniel took him up on it. And it changed Nathaniel's life. I'll let you read the rest for yourself when you have a moment. I want us to be like Philip at that point. Not resisting these skeptics, but embracing their dialogue, embracing their questions, and supplying answers to them readily and available. I want us 
to be able to engage with these people. If they decide to shoot you down, let them shoot you down, but at least you did your part. At least you invited him to come and see. Come and see. Hear it for yourself. Check it out for yourself. And the reason I say this is because an individual that has been very instrumental in reaching skeptics and atheists and agnostics does so because he himself was one. A reporter for the Chicago Tribune for many years overseeing the legal section of the paper convinced himself that he was an atheist. But then his wife came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and everything changed. And she continued to ask him and to invite him to church and eventually he did and the sermon that day caused him to do investigative work into Christianity, not for the finding out if it was true or not, but to disprove what was being said. And he himself spent hours, days, weeks, and years only to discover that he couldn't refute what was being said. And he himself came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and now is a champion back to skeptics and atheists and agnostics and writing books like The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith. And today we know him as Lee Strobel's. Guys, you and I, we may not be elevated to that level, but we can sure engage our friends, can't we? We can ensure engage our co-workers, our family members, can't we? Let us adopt this heart attitude of Philip. Come and see. Let's check it out together. I was once asked by a skeptic concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was challenging me greatly. And I said, you know what? Let's come and see together because, boy, everything I believe sure hangs upon that. I will never approach my reasoning with people from the position of relinquishing the truth or the validity of the Word of God. But I will take a moment of pause to consider where they're coming from and their inability to reason the same way I do because of my faith in Christ and showing them the evidence as plainly as it is. Letting the Spirit of God work upon their heart because their faith in Christ and their salvation is a work of God, not of me but allowing God that opportunity. I hope and pray that this has whet your appetite for what is yet to come as we continue our series on Sunday morning, Goodbye God.